Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This is the second in two episodes looking back on the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which arguably kicked off when the New York Times and The Guardian published articles on May 17, 2018. The Times headline was How Trump Consultants Exploited the Data of Millions while The Guardian went with revealed 50 million Facebook profiles harvested for Cambridge Analytica in major data breach. That number and the scale of the scandal would only grow in the weeks and months ahead. It served as a major catalyzing moment for privacy concerns in the social media age. In these episodes, we'll look back on what has happened since, the extent to which perceptions of what happened have changed or been challenged, and what unresolved questions that emerge from the scandal mean for the future. In this second episode, we'll hear a panel discussion hosted by the Bipartisan Policy Center that I helped moderate at the end of March. The panel featured Katie Harbath, a fellow in the Digital Democracy Project at the Bipartisan Policy Center, Alex Lundry, co-founder of Tunnel at Deep Root Analytics, and Matthew Rosenberg, a Washington-based correspondent for the New York Times and one of the individuals on the byline of that first-time story on Cambridge Analytica. Here's Katie Harbath to introduce the session. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for joining today's Bipartisan Policy Center panel on demystifying the Cambridge Analytica scandal. My name is Katie Harbath, and I'm a fellow with BPC's Digital Democracy Project. Before we dive into the discussion, I'd like to share a bit about of the background on BPC, today's topic, and our speakers. The Bipartisan Policy Center is a Washington, D.C.-based think tank that actively fosters bipartisanship by combining the best ideas from both parties to promote health, security, and opportunity for all Americans. BPC has more than a dozen policy projects working on issues from immigration to Social Security reform, and our panel today is hosted by BPC's Digital Democracy Project, which leads the policy conversation at the intersection of technology and democracy toward nuanced and pragmatic solutions to difficult problems. Misinformation, data privacy, and online political ads are some of the difficult problems that we work on at the Digital Democracy Project, and all were issues that the 2018 Cambridge Analytica scandal brought to the forefront of the public consciousness. This month marks the five-year anniversary of the scandal, and we have with us today several top technology and political experts to discuss if the countless studies, reports, hearings, laws, and products created in the aftermath of of Cambridge Analytica have made users' data safer. First, our moderator for today's discussion is Justin Hendricks. He is the CEO and editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture that encourages debate and discussion on issues at the intersection of technology and democracy. He is an associate research scientist and adjunct professor at NYU Tandon School of Engineering. In 2022, he was a democracy fellow with the Emerson Collective. Thanks for joining us, Justin. Next, we have Alex Lundry joining us as a panelist. He's the co-founder of a trio of leading data and analytics firms, Redbug Consulting, DeepRoop Analytics, and Tunnel Data, each specializing in helping clients use research, data, and analytics to inform their political advocacy and communications efforts. He ran the analytics efforts for Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential bid and Jeb Bush's 2016 primary campaign. He's also an adjunct instructor of data science and data visualization at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy and was named a top 50 influencer in politics by Campaigns and Elections Magazine. Thanks for joining us, Alex. We also have Matthew Rosenberg with the New York Times joining us as a panelist. He helped break the news of the Cambridge Analytica story in 2018 and was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize that year for reporting on Donald Trump. He has won three George Polk Awards, a George Loeb Award, and was twice a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Once in international reporting as part of a team of Times reporters covering the Islamic State, and another time for his work on Cambridge Analytica and data privacy. Thanks for joining us, Matt. And finally, I'm going to be our third panelist for today's discussion. In addition to my role as a fellow with the BBC's Digital Democracy Program, I'm also the founder and chief executive of Anchor Change, senior advisor for the International Republican Institute, a fellow at the Integrity Institute, and a non-resident fellow at the Atlanta Council. I previously worked at Facebook, now Meta, for 10 years as a director of public policy, building and leading global teams that managed elections and helped government and political figures use the social network to connect with their citizens or their constituents, excuse me. Now, with all the introductions out of the way, I'll turn it over to Justin to begin the panel. Thank you, Katie. And of course, 2018, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, uh, which broke, of course, in the pages of the New York Times and in The Guardian, 
uh, really the beginning perhaps of what we think of now as the tech lash ramifications to this day. So we're going to talk through these things. Um, and I'm going to give each of the panelists an opportunity to sort of explain their relationship to the story uh, and stake out perhaps some high-level thoughts about as they look back now from 2023 at 2018, you know, what are the kind of key themes that are perhaps beginning to set in their minds about what was important about that moment? And Katie, I'll turn the table on you and, and put it right to you. You were inside Facebook uh, when the story broke and, you know, obviously close to a lot of the figures that were implicated in the scandal uh, and and had a first seat to it. So tell us what your experience was. Yeah, it was it was surreal and very fast paced and in many different many different ways. Um, I I think I first learned that the story that Matthew and his team and everyone were working on the story in, in early March um, of it, and there was a lot of work amongst my team to try to figure out. Um, and gather information about what we knew about Cambridge Analytica, what it was telling different folks that were advertising with Facebook and the folks that my teams um, worked with. But what was interesting about it, though, kind of thinking about it is, you know, the data that Alexander Kogan got was part of something called Open Graph that Facebook had launched in uh, the 2010-2011 time period. And I oftentimes remind technologists that some of the decisions they're making today may not actually become story or will be seen in a different light five, six, seven, eight years later um, as part of this. And in fact, that same tooling was what something Barack Obama used in 2012 for something called targeted sharing um, that was widely praised as, as part of it. And this is that period of time when there's this optimistic view of the internet and people thought it was going to be a great democratizer. And there wasn't as much thought about this type of data, um, the types of permissions for, for giving people. There were some, but not in the same way that we're thinking about it today. And like you said, that was, you know, the tech lash kind of started, you know, right after President Trump's win um, in November, you had the Russian Internet Research Agency ads, and then you had this Cambridge Analytica um, story come out immediately after. So it was sort of wave after wave after wave of um, not just us at Facebook, but others in the tech industry really starting to grapple with the, the negative ways that our platforms could be used around democracy. Matthew, I want to come to you next. Um, of course, we one of the reporters who, who broke the story um, can you explain, you know, how you first heard about uh, the story and what happened in those early parts of March or perhaps late parts of February uh, where you started to dig in and what was the what was the beginning of it? So it was a bit earlier than that. We had first kind of heard about it. in. I think it had been brewing around. In all fairness, I want to say there are competitors who had broken many of much of it. But it was all based on anonymous sources. The details were a little fuzzy. I think the Intercept had some good reporting on it, but it was kind of not that whole picture. We've kind of got to this main source, somebody who helped us a lot in 2017, in the summer of 2017, and then spent a long time working with them and our partners at The Guardian. I think one of the problems you have when dealing with with any kind of opaque group is um, what can you believe? What can you trust? What can you not? I would say that many of the people we dealt with reporting out this story, we had to kind of make a rule around, which is whatever they tell us, unless we can verify it through documents or multiple other sources, we're not printing it. I mean, the amount of people who lied to us, tried to mislead us involved in that amount, it was just off. I mean, I think every, almost everyone involved at some point was was trying to lie to us basically and spin us in, in pretty, pretty overt and um, obvious ways. I imagine Katie would have found out about it the week that we got our hands on the actual data set. Up until then, we've been dealing with Facebook, telling them we're working on this, this is what we know. But it was all, they were like, well, you say this, you know, we don't really know it. And then I remember calling up their 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 main, one of their main comms people saying, hey, look, I just took a look at this data set. They're like, oh yeah, you know, this, this. I said, no, 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 the raw data. And then I started reading in parts of it. And he's like, uh-oh. He said, can I call you back? <laughs> and I imagine that's when they started getting people spun up inside Facebook. Um, so that's kind of, it took a while to kind to nail it down. And I think, you know, watching it kind of blow up as, as it kind of took off in the days and weeks after, after it published, one thing that really struck me was, was it, it how it kind of fit into everybody's preconceived notions. So if you wanted to believe that there was this great manipulation machine out there that got Donald Trump elected, this was what you needed. Even though, you know, at the times we'd written stories saying, look, what they did was snake oil. They, they, their claims to micro target and influence people were, were totally specialists. Like they, they, they didn't, they, but they, their technology did not work. And if, if you wanted to see this all as just some big conspiracy, saw it that way too. So it was an interesting, interesting phenomenon to kind of watch it grow. 
Alex, as a person in the trenches, uh, using you know data, using targeting uh, capabilities to help politicians spread their messages, um, what was your view from the outside? Well, so my experience comes from, yes, as a practitioner and a builder of data science models, predictive models for campaigns, as somebody involved on the Republican side of the data war, so to speak, but also as somebody who was pitched by Cambridge Analytica very early in the process. So in 2015, I was serving as chief analytics officer for the Jeb Bush campaign, and Cambridge uh, was making the rounds among all the primary um, candidates' teams trying to convince them that they would be that we should be considering working with them because of this unique data that they had. And so my experience was we want to validate their claims throughout. We asked them to see data, to conduct validation tests. And it became very clear to us very quickly that it was, as Matt said, snake oil, that there really wasn't much to this, that they were making incredibly bold claims about their predictive power which they then only continued uh, to do for the remainder of their of their time as a legal entity and before they uh, got into these problems. So it's not surprising for me to hear uh, from Matt that it's very hard to get trustworthy responses out of them. I, I know, you know, Nick's had a saying that he uh, would use in the company that was reported on by somebody that marketing materials aren't given under oath. And, um, and, and there were a lot of bold claims afterwards about what exactly um, they could do. But also just as a, as a practitioner, somebody who is a statistician and a data scientist, being able to look at what they did and say, and say this, this doesn't make sense. The predictive power you're looking for really can't quite be there. And that came across in a few things and their promises of you know, more impactful uh, um, advertising and creating more click-throughs. Um, with customized ads to, you know, your your ocean five-factor personality score. That's something that had only been demonstrated as useful for selling things like cosmetics. There was very little evidence that it was actually useful in things like politics, but also understanding exactly um, uh, what the data they had was capable of. There had been good research that showed that Facebook likes can be predictive, first of all, demographics, things like gender and age, um, but also some indication that Facebook likes could be used to predict personality and maybe political preferences. But then there is a whole methodological process that they would have to go through to take that data from Facebook and get it kind of ported over into the real world of the terrestrial voter file. And there's a lot of difficulties inherent in that. And so, you know, across all of those things, it just made us uh, highly skeptical. And we never ended up working with them. But of course, they did get hired by first the Cruz campaign. And then ultimately the Trump campaign. And I think in both of those instances, you have a lot of uh, um, uh, discussions after the fact where they were claiming to have much more impact, much more influence in those campaigns than they actually did. Matthew, I want to kind of come back to you a little bit on uh, this thing that Alex is describing, the kind of overstatement. You brought that up as well. Do you feel like you've seen good data, good evidence that suggests that uh, all of the claims that Cambridge Analytica was making about its persuasive capabilities uh, were, in fact, snake oil. Um, are there aspects of what they were doing that you uh, still have questions about uh, or, you know, other data that you believe would be necessary to corroborate those claims? So I, I guess the one person who who didn't miss, who wasn't misleading, who who I've never caught in a lie to me in this entire affair was Alexander Kogan, the data scientist who harvested the data for, for Cambridge and kind of helped them develop the technology. And, and, and Kogan likes to say that if this stuff had worked, he wouldn't be talking to me. He'd be working for every major brand, every major political candidate in the world if, this, if, if their claims were even half as good, but that it simply did not work, which is why he was helping his wife start you know a, a startup that deals with customer service, not in the data persuasion world anymore. And so I, I really have not seen anything beyond their own marketing um, that suggests anything worked. And I guess in the, in the months to follow the story, all these, there was a woman named Brittany Kaiser. These people kind of popped up claiming to also be whistleblowers, even though they were all whistleblowers after the company collapsed, not before. And, you know, they'd be providing us, look at the, here's the evidence that works. And they'd have some internal briefing that the company did for its people, which is basically like a sales meeting. You know, like rah rah, this works. I mean, there was never any internal external study that they could provide that says we've been able to demonstrate X, Y, and Z. They didn't do it at all. They didn't do any kind of attempt to kind of prove out their claims. 
and and yeah, and the Trump campaign and the Cruz campaign said, look, their their roles were, were fairly narrow here, you know. And and if if I can jump in on that, I, I mean, there there's good evidence. Um, well, first of all, if you just take the ocean five factor personality mm-hmm. test, there, this is the personality test that's used to predict, you know, where you are on openness, conscientiousness, uh, extroversion, uh, um, uh, something else, and neuroticism, right? And if you just take that test, they do something called a test retest um, method, which is how good is this test at predicting your personality the first time, but then how well is it correlated the second time you take it? Even on that test retest um, statistic, the correlation between the test is only about 0.5, right? So even the test itself isn't very highly correlated with itself. And any um, academic investigations we've had of, of the usefulness of using likes to predict uh, personality, that's only half of that, half of half, right? So we're only looking at a quarter in terms of its correlation coefficient. And so there's just not a lot to indicate that personality is affected. But then there's also this whole other part of it, which is, you. let's say you do know somebody's personality, then can you craft an ad that effectively kind of triggers you know, the neuroticism that you're trying to do. And I think, you know, it's not it's not very easy to do that. And then its usefulness is questionable. The click-through rates and a lot of um, the testing that's been done are, you know, fractions of 1% in terms of click-through rates. So it's just, I th- uh, for me, there's no clear evidence that any of this uh, psychological targeting is really worthwhile. You know, I think it became an easy thing that if, if you wanted to say, oh, my, like, look at the Trump campaign, they were able to like do all this. It must be manipulation. And, and it was harder for people to accept the fact that, yeah, they all seemed kind of like disorganized. And, and how could these guys really run a great digital campaign? They were pushing a digital product. They were doing an amazing amount of A-B testing. They were running ads. All their ads required an action. Click on this. Put your address here. Give us information here. None of the Clinton campaign did none of that. And what these guys were basically doing is they were like on a late night kind of QVC show pushing a product. The product was Trump and the Clinton campaign was running some kind of fuzzy brand loyalty thing. And so it's it's not hugely surprising when you look at, at Facebook's own internal studies that demonstrate what the Trump campaign did, that they were really successful where the Clinton campaign was not. And, and you don't really need to have the great manipulation machine to kind of get you from point A to point B. I want to come back a little later to uh, the possibility of political manipulation with micro-targeting personal data, uh, particularly as we're thinking about it now with the rise of generative AI uh, and types of concerns that we're seeing about the potential use of those technologies to tailor individual messages to people across audio, video, uh, and text. But perhaps you know the real action, I guess, when you think about in the expert community or certainly in the regulatory response uh, was not so much, not so many concerns so much about manipulation per se, but concerns about privacy. That was really where uh, the action was, the kind of responses from uh, regulators and from lawmakers uh, and and the focus of many of the hearings. Uh, Katie, you mentioned, you know, uh, the decisions that Facebook had taken around Open Graph, uh, how that had, you know, essentially sort of set the stage for the Cambridge Analytica scandal you know, a lot of the lawsuits around Cambridge Analytica have been settled. But we do know from discovery, you know, that ultimately uh, Facebook did do its internal audit to look for other apps that uh, potentially had the same exposure uh, as Cambridge Analytica or offered the same exposure of data. And it turned out to be hundreds, if not thousands. Um, so, Andrew, can you speak to that a little bit, just the trajectory of that history, uh, how Facebook ended up in that situation? And then I'd love to come around to the rest of you and just talk about how you assess the privacy aspect of the scandal. So first, let me describe, go a little bit deeper in terms of what Open Graph was. So this is, again, about 2010, 2011 timeframe. A lot of you are probably playing Farmville um, or games like that on, on Facebook. And you would see these buttons across the web or other places that would say, you know, connect with Facebook. And when you clicked on that button, the pop-up would appear asking you to give that app permissions to give you certain Facebook data. Um, it was usually like your name, your email address, your phone numbers, your likes and interests. But with this open graph, it was also asking you to give permission to have access to the same information of your friends. And so when you did that, you were now, that app could then all of a sudden, um, you know, in the case of Farmville, show you your other friends who are playing Farmville. 
um, if you want to do that. In the case of how the Barack Obama campaign used it was you logged in and rather than showing you strangers in which to contact to try to get them to support the campaign, they were trying to show you people that you knew or you had common interests in. Um, and so that's why when when Kogan was running his quiz and you logged in with that um, with that Facebook um, prompt and you were giving them permission, they he was able to pull down not just your data, but, but your friend's data. And let's be honest, most people even still today don't really read those things and they just click right through, right? Um, to get to the thing that they want to, that they want to get to. <clears throat> now the challenge with this is, and I think a lot of this came out like um, in discovery and stuff like that as, the, as these things have been going on, is when Facebook realized that um, that Cambridge Analytica had this data, which was against the terms because Kogan was doing it under academic research purposes, not for commercial purposes, um, we actually had little recourse beyond sending a cease and desist, but we didn't have, you know, once the data left our servers, it's very hard to track where there's copies of it. How do you confirm that they've actually um, deleted all of those copies, everything like that. And that's going to, that remains a challenge today when we talk about, you know, platforms giving researchers more access to data, because this is, I keep telling people, these Cambridge Analytica scars run deep and the platforms don't want to be faced in a situation again of having some Something like this, something like this happen, and so, and then post um, the stories coming out and everything. Yeah, an audit of looking at all these different apps, who might have had the data, who might still have that data out there. Um, Relooking at are they what those apps do, and if they're violating our terms and service or not, um, and everything like that. Um, it was quite a, um, a quite a laborious process. And I should note though that Open Graph was shut down. Um, you couldn't have any new apps, couldn't use it after 2014, and any legacy apps it was shut down for them. Uh, but May of 2015. So these were even still pretty older apps when you're thinking about this of doing all this in uh, 2018. Just quickly, I want to remind viewers that uh, if you have a question, you can submit those and I'll try to bring those in uh, throughout the discussion. Uh, but Matthew, I want to come back to you on this question of the privacy scandal aspect of this. Uh, you know, uh, probably I, I suspect no other reporting you've done has led to such a massive FTC fine or uh, you know, uh, perhaps so many hearings in multiple governments around the world, uh, the types of privacy concerns. Do you think that regulators and lawmakers, uh, I don't know, took advantage of the Cambridge Analytica moment as a catalyzing moment uh, to do something about privacy? I think they tried. And look, the privacy issue was for us the story here. Um, you know, I think the manipulation thing was something we understood pretty quickly to, to not be the issue. And it was heartening to see many legislators experts, attorneys, attorney generals understand that as well. Though I do think that kind of muddied the water, this idea of manipulation did muddy the water there. Um, look, I, I don't think I've written anything that's had, uh, the impact's been different. I mean, um, the reporting for this was expensive and involved multiple trips to London. And about a week after the story ran, Facebook had to take out full page ads in about seven newspapers apologizing, including the Times. I definitely called up some of the advertising departments like, yo, how much do they pay for that? And then called my editor saying, you see, we made we made a profit on this. Um, <laughs> you see, my, my, the, the, the tens of thousands I spent flying to London was well spent. Um, <clears throat> But it is, um, and I, I think there. I think look in, in in meaningfully detailed ways, getting people to read terms of service to understand, you know, the intricacies of where their data goes is asking a lot of, of of any consumer, any kind of ordinary person. But the overall sense that, like, look, you're giving out a ton of information about yourself, and maybe you need to be a little careful about that and think a little more about it. That's kind of the, the for me the most meaningful meaningful lasting impact here. It probably also helped push along some laws like GDPR and stuff like that that I think we're going to pass anyway. But it certainly provided a little public support there. But that bigger overall idea that everybody kind of now knows that like yo maybe slow down and don't you know give everything you know about yourself to every app that shows up that you're interested in might be a good idea. And that's really been the most meaningful impact there. Alex, did it change the behaviors of folks who are in the business of using data to target folks for political messaging? I mean, there were certain practices that uh, were exposed by reporters, for instance, at Channel 4, who went to Wisconsin, visited particular neighborhoods that were targeted by uh, the Trump campaign, looked at some of the uh, you know voter suppression campaigns that they ran. I think there was just a lot of just anger, really, at, at that type of practice, even if it had been going on for decades in other contexts, uh, there was something about it that seemed more nefarious to folks because of the use of, of such 
fine-grained personal information. Yeah, I mean, it certainly coincided with a time where uh, companies like the ones I've been involved with had to do more around privacy, um, particularly around uh, California's you know CCPA um, legislation, which now requires us to um, provide data to any California resident who requests it, who um, so that they can see exactly what we have, that they can put their names on the do not sell list, they can have their name removed from the database, and um, you know it really. I think what what this did for us in conjunction with that sort of legislation was we said, well, we're going to want to expand those 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 rights to basically any citizen in the U.S., not just uh, uh, you know limit it to California. We, we believe those are something that those are things that should be accessible to everybody in the U.S. But yeah, I, I think that there was kind of a, a moment uh, of self reflection where people said, hey, look, uh, this this seems to cross into the line. Uh, across the line into manipulation versus persuasion. And I do think you have to think of those as being on a continuum between the two, right? And micro-targeting has, from the very beginning, been something that people uh, uh, have been uh, cautious about or skeptical about because they believe that fundamentally it would allow people to talk out of both sides of their mouths or politicians to talk out of both sides of their mouths that they could find a pro-life group and basically say pro-life things to them. They could then find a pro-choice group and say pro-choice things to them. I mean, in reality, we, you know, I have no personal experience with any politicians that that really want to do anything like that. Um, but, you know, like like many tools, it can be used, you know, uh, for, for good and it can be used uh, poorly, you know, and we can kind of go more towards persuasion or more towards manipulation. And we need to be constantly reflecting on, you know, how much is too much here for that. But, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, um, persuasion is what political campaigns do. It's what anybody does when they're trying to, you know, uh, get anybody to come over to their side, which is how do you best frame this issue, this argument, so that people will agree with me? And and I, I think that's a, you know, obviously a fundamental right that political campaigns have and, and um, micro-targeting allows them to do that well. And frankly, to talk about issues that wouldn't be talked about in uh, were it just a large-scale broadcast campaign. If it's just going to be a large-scale broadcast campaign, every time you're going to be talking about the economy because it's the most important issue to the, the largest number of people. But micro-targeting allows you to have you know, a digital campaign about housing availability. It allowed you know, Mitt Romney to send mailers to uh, suburban uh, women in Northern Virginia about Lyme disease, <laughs> right? So uh, it does allow for these other issues, I think, to rise to the forefront. I just wanted to add that because um, you were asking me some of the things that, you know, at Facebook to what Alex is talking about with the micro-targeting and people worry that politicians are talking out of both sides of their mouth. One of the things that I think that I'm actually kind of most proud of that came, I, to say something proud, came out of the Cambridge Analytica scandal were these political and issue ad transparency tools that um, we at Facebook built, Google built others that actually allow people to have more insight into the ads that these campaigns are running, who's seeing them, you're starting to see the, the targeting data um, that they're doing. Now, these tools have a long way to go still to, you know, in terms of improvements. And I'd like to see some more places like streaming platforms and others where you're seeing advertising go to have similar transparency. But I think that's been really important for people to be able to kind of hold these politicians accountable and really be able to study the type of advertising that they're doing. Can I can I add one thing there? I, I think that, and it, it, I, I don't want to take anything away from Facebook for for doing that ad library. I think it was great, and I think it inadvertently kind of shows the problem here a little bit of of kind of understanding exactly the, what is manipulation, what is microtargeting, what is persuasion, because any good digital campaign is running dozens of the same ads with small variations. Maybe it's a color, maybe it's where a button's placed, maybe a few words are different. So on any given day in 2020, like the spring of 2020, if you had logged in and tried to track, well, what's Trump saying? You would get 45 ads, 50, 60, 70 ads about his birthday that was coming up the next day to try and get any kind of sense of scope and scale over what he'd been saying over weeks or months was almost impossible because there's just such a deluge uh, of ads that are coming. And, and the tools to sift through that are, are, are they're hard to come by. I think they're hard to use. I think that takes, you know, real researchers to go through. Um, and so that is sort of the limit here as well, that, you know, there's just such, such there's a deluge. That's the best way to put it, I guess. And just to bring it back to, to, to bring it right up to today, yeah. You know, you know, Matt's talking about 45 different versions of the ad. That's what they were doing in 2016 and 2020. Yeah. I do think that what we're seeing now out of the generative AI world 
is going to just, uh, you know, completely cause those number of variations of those variable ads to skyrocket because you could very easily, you know, manipulate things like color and the button location, but copy was always very hard to, uh, to generate. You could only generate so many different variations on a prompt, but now, you know, using tools like ChatGPT and Bard and Bing, you know, you could very quickly and very easily generate, you know, a, a thousand different pieces of copy. And so I think the the number of those, those experimental ads is just going to uh, increase exponentially. Well, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about that. Uh, talk about the future. You know, um, it's not just, of course, generative AI and the ability to produce synthetic media uh, that is changing and continuing to evolve. The technology is changing there. Uh, but also we've got, you know, new forms of, of recommendation and targeting, at, you know, algorithms and technology. You know, we've moved on from the generation of perhaps more primitive uh, ideas that Cambridge Analytica was or was not uh, employing well enough. Uh, but, you know, we're on to a different generation, right? And, and new sensor data from people's devices, um, all kinds of stuff that are kind of coming together. And I think a lot of folks still do have this, this kind of concern uh, that eventually you'll see some combination of uh, more sophisticated targeting mechanisms with these generative AI systems. Alex, do you expect that to be a big factor in the 2024 cycle? Yeah, yeah, I think I do. I, I do expect to see, you know, certainly the use of generative AI in the 2024 cycle. We're going to see that, um, certainly. Um, I, I do think you have a good point about new forms of data coming online. Um, you, you know, the, the problem with all these data sets is basically breaking them out of silos and being able to kind of map them all together into using some sort of universal ID. And that we're not quite, we're not really there yet. We're not at a point where it's very easy to connect the online and offline world. There's actually a great number of difficulties in doing that. You know, look no further. The very easy example is something like Twitter you know, linking a Twitter handle to a terrestrial person, you may be able to do it for a person here and there, but to be able to do it at scale and link that data is is still a very, very, very hard, right? Um, so I, I do think, you know, there's going to be more data, uh, the predictive power could get better. But I also think that the thing I think lay people need to keep in mind is that, number one, the data isn't always correct, right? Um, you can actually request your data file from your big consumer data provider like Axiom. Um, you can go to their website, request that data, and actually see what they have on you. And you'll be surprised at how frequently it's wrong for a specific individual. Um, but in the aggregate, it's it's good enough to help us be predictive, right? Um, and so, you know, if anything, I, I would encourage people to go look at their data and they may find it actually comforting. But two, also, you know, not everybody's perfectly predictive. You know, all models are wrong, but some are useful. That's the statistician's motto, right? In that our models can only ever be um, a, a, be a fraction of, uh, of perfection, right? Even a model that's 95% wrong means that, you know, five out of 100 people were getting it wrong. Um, and so those are the things to keep in mind, which is we aren't mind readers. We aren't uh, people who can, you know, uh, tell you who you're voting for before you've even decided yourself. That that's just hyperbole that comes out of a lot of the stories here. Katie, I know one of the things you've been doing at the Bipartisan Policy Center is uh, looking at the history of the way that platforms have engaged with elections, handled elections. Do you think uh, looking out, I know it's hard to talk about all of them, uh, but do you think that the major platforms are ready for the 2024 cycle and the ways that we might see the combination of generative AI uh, political ads and other forms of targeting combined? So I've been nervous about the number of elections happening in 2024 for, for a while now, because it's the first time ever in the same year, we're not only going to have the U.S. presidential election, but elections in India, Indonesia, possibly Ukraine, Taiwan, Mexico, the United Kingdom, and the European Parliament, plus about 55-ish others um, that are going to be happening. And so that's a lot of fronts um, for the, the tech companies to be, and not just tech companies, but government, civil society, academia, the media, <clears throat> to be fighting um, and to be keeping up with all of this. And this time period really reminds me in a much more condensed cycle of the time period, you know, 2004, you had Facebook was created, then it was 2005 was YouTube, 2006 was 2007 timeframe was Twitter. And so it's like every election cycle, there's a new tool that we were adding 
to this. Um, and just today, one of Matthew's uh, colleagues, uh, Shane, had a story about how campaigns are already looking to use generative AI um, to in which to help generate email copy and ad copy and all those things that Alex was talking about as well. And ChatGPT, this new version of it, just came out last November. It was only four four-ish months ago. Um, and look at how much it's already changing. Like I just think that. So my answer is I'm I'm nervous about it. I'm nervous about we are entering like how the 2024 election is going to be uh, campaigned on with you know use of TikTok, whether or not it's banned in the U.S. It'll be used in other places or or things like it. Um, the use of AI, the use of um, streaming and other platforms, people using messaging apps a lot more, please. Places like, you know, you have the more fringe apps like a Gab or a Gitter or a Parler, but also like a Telegram and other things like that. And so there's just a lot more fronts that we're going to have to, to fight this on. And it's going to be totally new tools. And I just think that come the end November of 2024, the world's going to look so different in, in a way that we can't even imagine um, today and campaigns and even the tools that campaigns are going to have at the start of the primaries versus what they're going to have by the end of the general election, I think will also have changed as well. And so we need to stay really diligent of understanding what these tools are and, and asking for transparency and asking some of the questions and hopefully learning some of the lessons of the questions that we didn't ask, you know, in the pre-2016 timeframe. Matthew, I want to maybe come to you and, and talk a little bit about um, just the maybe more overall context of, of the information ecosystem, trust in it, um, sort of fears that people have about uh, misinformation and, uh, you know, conspiracy theories like stop the steal. Uh, we're seeing, of course, disinformation play a role in the war in Ukraine, which you've covered. You've written about January 6th and, um, you know, that phenomenon. Uh, you know, how do... You know, these issues around privacy, political manipulation, how do they kind of come together in people's minds and kind of a folklore of, of political manipulation, if you will, or folklore of disinformation? Uh, do you see those things as all connected? I mean, I, I think they're connected in the sense that there is, I'm trying to figure out a good way to put this. You know, a, a lot of the reporting I've done, it's been out around the country talking to folks. And I think we have a lot of research to back up the idea that, that you know, people are not as persuadable as we think they are. Uh, they tend to view politics through their own kind of identity, what they think of themselves, their communities. And, and so into that mix, you get these different messages, which makes them very easy to kind of take up if you want to believe one thing, stop the steal, whatever it is. And, and, and how we can change that, I think, is really hard. And there's another piece here, which, which we don't talk about as much, at least in the media, and we probably should talk about more, which is trust in the media. Is that at some point, you know, like, look, if you trust everything a political campaign tells you, like, I got I got a lot of land in Florida to sell you, a lot of swamp to sell you somewhere. Um, but, you know, what we the model is we, we want it to kind of the ideal model is that you've got these somewhat neutral kind of people trying to do their best to be objective and impartial, trying to play referee here. But if you don't trust them, there's no trust in them. Then it's a free for all. And I think that's something the media and a society we really do need to wrestle, which is why don't people trust us? How do we work on that? How do we fix that? Because without that piece, the entire setup we have doesn't really function very well. And it does open it up to all kinds of messaging that is, you know, from outright lies to shading the truth. I, I don't love the term disinformation. I have to say it gives like a scientific certainty uh, kind of sounding scientific, scientific, it sounds like something, there's some scientific certainty to a very fuzzy concept that is often, you know, what you think, whatever you disagree with can often be labeled disinformation. But it, it, there is an issue there where if there if, if there's no trust in kind of experts, if there's no trust in the media, then who are, who do you, who do you look to, to kind of say, well, what should I believe? What shouldn't I believe? And I don't think it's just that people are dumb or people have been manipulated. I think that the media, the kind of the academic expert class has to look within itself and try to figure out people, why aren't people listening to us? What can we do to change that? Got a couple of questions from the audience uh, that want to uh, come to uh, one that perhaps, you know, uh, suggests that maybe transparency and openness in our political process uh, isn't always great. You know, that, that perhaps, to some extent, some transparency has led to more partisanship, deeper political fights. Um, do you think that's true in the in the case of political advertising uh, that we, you know, uh, there's a point at which we could push too far uh, on transparency? Alex, I don't know how you feel about that. 
It's a good question. Uh, I, I don't know that uh, I, I consider transparency to be quite useful. I like the ad disclosures that we're, that we're getting from Facebook. Of course, I'd like to see it more useful. More information, in my opinion, is better. You've got to keep in mind that I'm a statistician. I'm a data scientist, so I'm a data hoarder. Um, so I want to get my hands on as much information as possible. Um, so I don't I don't quite see the relationship, but maybe other people um, uh, do. Well, I think one of the interesting studies that that came out recently that I saw was, you know, there there's this thought that that um, social media platforms actually cause echo chambers, but there's actually studies that also show that people are actually exposed to more differing viewpoints um, in their news feeds quite a bit. And actually, this one study that I saw, which is kind of interesting, is that that may be actually what's causing more polarization because you're confronted every day with people who think differently venue and and it can cause your sort of flight <laughs> flight or fright fright um aspects of it um where you want to kind of argue um against that and 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 potentially make you more polarized so i think the the research in this area is still very mixed um in terms of the effects of these things and i think it's less about the transparency um around this though i think that has um we, we could talk about how the Cambridge Analytica scandal affected research and, and getting more data out for researchers and, and people to, to think about that. But I think it's more about the, the algorithms and, and how they are kind of deciding, you know, helping decide what you do see in your newsfeed. Well, and, and sorry, Katie, you, you said the word algorithms and it, and it triggered something, which is, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about algorithmic transparency, which is to what extent should we be kind of revealing the actual underlying algorithms that are used to do this targeting? And I think that while it sounds very nice, I think there are like uh, hundreds of practicalities that we need to consider because first and foremost, that many of these uh, predictive models that we're building just themselves aren't transparent. Take a neural network, you don't even really know what's going on um, inside of that. It is a black box algorithm. And so it's very hard to understand exactly what it's queuing on and queuing off of. It's not to say it's not impossible, um, to figure out some sort of standard, you know, interface with with an al- with an algorithm, but we do need to kind of carefully consider, you know, what we're uh, forcing to be available to people, how we're how it's being shared, and sort of what sort of questions we're asking of it. Want to hit one more question uh, that I've been given from uh, the audience, uh, which is around organic content. Uh, n- you know, organic content, of course, is is something that political campaigns attempt to inject into the discourse on social media uh, in different ways, as opposed to just the use of ads. Um, is there anything there that you want to kind of talk a, a little bit about, uh, Katie or Alex? Um, how you're seeing political, you know, campaigns drive uh, organic content or, or you know, um, try to I- invent different moments? Yeah, I think the interesting thing for me right now is um, how they these campaigns are going to be working with influencers. Um, you know, you had in the 2020 election, um, Bloomberg was working with influencers and there's questions if they were adequately disclosing if they were paid or not. Wired had a cover story um, last year talking about their industries that have popped up um, in order to um, to help match brands and, and politicians and others to influencers uh, who might be able to share their content. Uh, it's interesting, TikTok updated ahead of the hearing last week, updated their political advertising rules to say that also um, campaigns couldn't pay influencers to push political messages on TikTok, which I think is going to be something very much to, to watch because that was a tactic that the Washington Post had reported the Biden campaign was thinking about doing. Um, and, and, you know, the White House has brought TikTok influencers in to kind of talk about some of their legislative priorities and and things of that nature. And so um, you'll continue to see campaigns doing their own content for sure. But I think they're also going to be looking at how they piggyback and and, and utilize others, which brings up, opens up a whole host of other questions around transparency of understanding, you know, who's just endorsing a candidate because they like that candidate versus who's being paid for that endorsement or their message that they're they're putting out. And that's something that the platforms um, will struggle with because they, they can, they can, only see what's actually happening on their own platform. And so if payment or other things are happening off platform, that is much harder on to, to track and to be able to monitor. Alex, anything you want to add there on influencers and their role in political campaigns these days? Rules still very unclear. On influencers specifically, probably not. I don't know that I have much to add, but um, you know, I will say that one thing I've seen happen and, and I'm, I'm sort of wondering in what, you know, what direction it'll continue to go, which is the use 
uh, by political parties or campaigns or organizations of the creation of sites that look a lot like um, news sites and, and draft news articles, and that are then you know shared through advertisements or pushed to people um, specifically um, so that they can see those and, and be influenced. Then, I mean that that to me is where I think you get into you know questions of what goes into the the ad transparency project. You know, and I think that that's one thing that Facebook and I know others have struggled with, which is what are we defining as, you know, political? What are we defining as issue advocacy, right? If you're just an organization that's talking about, you know, how how green your product is, is that is that sales or is that advocacy? And and uh, and so that I, I think those are some of the more interesting questions around, um, you know, what to do with organic or organic like content. So I want to uh, just as we kind of round out, come kind of come into the last you know quarter of the conversation. Just want to kind of think about you know how these ideas about the Cambridge Analytical uh, scandal are setting in people's minds. And one place that you know we heard the words Cambridge Analytica uttered on multiple occasions the other day was during the TikTok hearing uh, with the TikTok CEO uh, Sho Chu, uh, who had to defend himself uh, from lawmakers concerned about sort of precisely the types of things that that Mark Zuckerberg had to answer for in 2018 when he first appeared before, uh, I think, the Senate uh, Judiciary and Commerce Committees to answer for Cambridge Analytica, as well as a host of other concerns kind of coming out of the, the 2016 cycle. Um, we heard lawmakers invoke the words Cambridge Analytica. We also heard Shochu himself invoke Cambridge Analytica in his defense of TikTok. A lot of the same concerns around uh, you know, whether people are being manipulated politically by uh, the Chinese Communist Party or, you know, whether their personal data is being absconded with for for various reasons. Um, I don't know. What did you make of that? And how did that for you kind of reflect where we've got to on Cambridge Analytica as a kind of shorthand for understanding these issues? Maybe, Katie, I'll start with you. What's really interesting is, like you said, that it has become this shorthand for encompassing a lot of different things and conflating a lot of different issues um, to, to what you know Matthew was kind of talking about is like it was somewhat of a convenient narrative for people trying to figure out how in the world did Donald Trump win? Um, because, you know, something to I think Alex was talking about, like it's important to remember that after 2016, the first story was not Russian interference. It was Macedonian teenagers who are running fake news stories in order to try to get clicks and get money. And so like, only imagine in the AI world <laughs> being able to generate that content, you know, to try to push that out there. You saw people, um, you saw people falling for the fake poke picture um, this, this week and stuff like that <clears throat> will be interesting. And so I think sometimes people say Cambridge Analytica um, and they, and they mean all of, all of that, but then it's also seen as like, everybody's like, Oh, that, those words are just like, that was a bad thing. That was a bad thing that a tech company did we don't maybe even need to know all the details. And so when you see other tech CEOs or others mentioning it, it's, it's just a very easy shorthand of being like, we're going to be different than that. We're, we're not doing the same things as that. But I think as many of us know, and you've seen a lot of people argue, um, particularly around the TikTok hearings, is like banning it alone is not going to solve the concern around Chinese Communist Party having access to our data and other things because there's so many other plat um, platforms and the types of data and stuff that are out there and really pushing for more of a comprehensive data privacy bill, which is something we've not gotten here in the United States at a federal level. Um, but obviously, Europe has passed um, some laws um, around that, um, you know, in the Digital Services Act and Digital Markets Act will be starting to be enacted here. Um, already that will be important to watch um, going forward and what impact those actually have. That was the subtext of the hearing, just the you know reality that the U.S. does not have a national privacy legislation. There were a few lawmakers that you know were conscious enough of of the you know the reality that to kind of bring that up. Um, I am I'm struck by you know there was a morning consult poll uh, a little earlier this year uh, that looked at the degree to which folks would back uh, some of the main provisions of a national data data privacy law, and in particular the American Data Privacy. And Protection Act, um, and you know, broad support. This is one thing that people across the parties agree. And one and two Republicans uh, said they supported, uh, you know, the idea of reining in social media companies' use of of algorithms and and use of personal data. Three and five Democrats um, really just sort of broad based support for 
measures that would essentially limit the types of behaviors that Cambridge Analytica uh, got up to. Um, I don't know, Alex, you, do, you, do you see that changing at any point? Are we going to see uh, finally privacy legislation in the United States? Are you anticipating that in your business? So I don't think that the primary driver towards national privacy legislation will necessarily be public opinion. I think what's more likely to happen is we're on a very clear path towards a patchwork uh, regulatory system across the 50 states. Um, You have privacy legislation either passed or being considered in places like Virginia, Florida. We have it in California. I believe Maine and Vermont are up there as well. And, uh, and and there's no consistency across them. And so I, I think if we end up with national privacy legislation, it'll be in order to provide some sort of consistency for uh, companies there. Um, public opinion on this, I do think people generally agree that we that something needs to be done. Devil's in the details. And but it's also worth noting that, you know, you can quite easily do a survey experiment where you ask, you know, half the people, do you want, um, you know, you can use loaded big brother language. Do you want, you know, people, um, you know, tracking your data across the internet and using it to, to, to target you and people will be very opposed to that. But then the other half of the survey, you can ask them questions like, are you interested in seeing uh, advertisements that are customized to your preferences? And they'll say, yes, absolutely. Right. And, and, you know, among, you know, my peers will, will talk in the same conversation about how our phones must be listening because I just got this ad for this thing and how creepy is that? And then in the other one, they'll be talking about how poorly targeted this ad was. Can you believe that they're sending me information about this? And so I do think it's kind of hard to see, um, you know, a a really robust consistency uh, from the American public on this. I think generally they agree that something needs to be done. Um, but I think we're more likely to get that legislation um, through by by overcoming that patchwork that we're seeing in the states right now. Matthew, as you've gone out and talked to folks around the country, uh, any any perspective on this issue? Do you think that um, either lawmakers or perhaps uh, uh, you know the public will push for basic privacy protections? I mean, I, I get the sense that I think, you know, there's an impulse among legislators, among experts, like if we ban the thing, we try and control it, we'll bring in our control and it rarely ever works. And, and I've, I've often wondered if it's if it's not better to try and create more robust laws, we already have some more robust enforcement of laws about disclosure, basically. Like if you are a paid influencer, you need to say you're a paid influencer paid by the campaign. You know, you can't run a political ad on TV and pretend it's not a political ad. Why should we be able to do that in other areas? That we that maybe something more affirmative like that rather than trying to limit, but accept the fact that we're going to have somewhat of a wild west. How do we kind of introduce some rules to make it calm down a little bit, Mike over better, because I think to Alex's point, people like to see ads they want. You know, I know Instagram, for instance, totally has my number more than any other social media app. It does serve me up one thing after another, where like, if I'm not careful, I'll go into large credit card debt, buying crap I don't need. And I'd much rather that than see like things I don't want. And, um, and I think that is the vast majority of people feel that way. And, and that the more we can do to give them the information they need, to make decisions they want to make, the better off will be rather than trying to tell them what they can't see or the apps they can't use. Because it's, it's not going to work. They'll find ways around it. You know, the same way that the New York Times gets banned in China. Trust me, every Chinese citizen Chinese citizen who wants the New York Times has a VPN to go see it. You know, we will find ways to use things we're told we can't use. So why then try and ban them? It doesn't work. Let's try and find a way to give people the tools they need, the information they need to, to use things the best they can in the safest way possible. Well, and, and I've actually got a question for Katie. Katie, do you have a sense of, of how frequently used, you know, Facebook's own, like, pri- was it the privacy checkup or is that, am I thinking of? Oh, yeah. Are, yeah. Are, are, no, that was are, us. Are, are, are people actually doing that? Are they engaging with that? It was a very small percentage. I don't remember the numbers right off the the top of my head, but um, any of those types of tools, you know, there's also anytime you do see an ad, you can click on the three dots and you can go and see why am I seeing this ad and it'll show you what the targeting uh, parameters are Um, for political ads. People could opt out of political ads too. And we just see very small numbers of people, even if you do make them go through it before they could even see like their stuff on Facebook or on Instagram or on any of these apps. Again, like I was saying, they just click right through it. Um, and it's, it's just very overwhelming for people to really take the time and, and understand 
where all of their data is in, in all of these different spots and, and they just don't have, have time to, to even think about it or, you know, try to figure that out. I mean, I, I probably have a hard drive. I have a hard drive full of data I've downloaded, you know, download your data from us. I do it and then I don't look at it and stuff it somewhere. And they go, oh, look at that one day. And it's just filling up hard drives that need to be erased or thrown out sooner or later. Uh, well, yeah, Matthew, as a journalist, you know, you're OPSEC there. Make sure you uh, keep those things under lock and key. Um, I, you, you, well, you know, but I think that's an interesting point because I think we all have to accept the fact that there's a lot less privacy than we think there is. And the maybe we need to start thinking about a world in which there are remedial ways to fix problems that, that come up in this rather than trying to recreate a privacy, a world of privacy that will not exist with the level of technology we have, that we can go back 50 or hundred years and give up all the conveniences or we accept a little less privacy and try and figure out ways to work with that rather than try and pretend we're going to roll it back because we're not going to. I think for a significant uh, portion of the country, another catalyzing event around privacy, of course, just happened uh, in the last few months with the uh, uh, decision in, in Dobbs in the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, of course, that raised a lot of privacy concerns um, in communities that are worried about how discussions about reproductive health and abortion uh, may expose people to potential criminal liability, a lot of concern about period tracking apps and you know other applications of that sort. Um, wanted to ask you all if you can imagine another kind of catalyzing event that may occur. Perhaps it's around that. Perhaps it's around that issue, or maybe you want to you want to comment on that. Um, but to the extent that we can kind of look out over the next couple of years. Do you think there's another uh, potential scandal around privacy that's looming uh, that would be at the scale of Cambridge Analytica or even approach it? Can you imagine what that might be? I hate to ask you to speculate, but with three minutes left to, to go, I think I will. Well, I think one thing is going to be, you know, there's a lot of public data out there with people's addresses and, and other things. You know, I use a tool called Delete Me to try to go in and, and find a, little, a lot of that to not have that in there. And depending upon how these AI models, what types of data they're being trained off of and where that public data uh, comes in also like uses of your own likeness. Like there's these scams going around and it happened to a friend of mine where they used her voice off of a podcast to call her mother to make her mom think she was kidnapped um, on this. Oh. And yeah, and so she she was on a call, she got off the call and the cops had showed up at, at her house um, thinking that she was, in, she was in trouble. And so, you know, this is moving a lot more from just, you know, the bits, the ones and zeros and, and that bits of data that it's existing in the, in the you know, the internet world, it's also using these tools to really affect the offline world and thinking about how do you even protect your, your own image, likeness, personal information, um, your voice, everything um, that could be manipulated in, in different ways. And how do you even try to detect that, pull it down, stop that is going to be, you know, people are already going through that and, and having challenges um, of fighting that. So potentially voice scams, uh, which, you know, already a problem. Absolutely. And that's a, another a tie to generative AI. Alex, is there something else that you're concerned about? Um, nothing in particular comes to mind. I, I agree with Katie about the concerns about likenesses and voices. I do think generally, <laughs> um, you know, she mentioned public data sets and what's available. I think that's one thing we continue to run into is people's lack of awareness or, or, or literacy about what exactly is already public and out there. And, you know, it's basically like de facto versus de jour uh, privacy in that, you know, things are becoming more easy uh, to access or being put online. It's getting easier to download this sort of data in mass. Um, you know, you could go right now, you could Google Ohio Secretary of State a voter file and within about 30 seconds be downloading the entire voter file for the state of Ohio. These are public records. And I don't know that there's great awareness uh, around that or about that. And so, you know, to Katie's point, at what point do we start seeing like basically the the merging or uh, of of these sorts of data sets into something which is you know when put together it's uh it's very damaging yeah. matthew uh, maybe a final comment from you i'm of the same mind mind as them about this i mean i think there is a really fundamental misunderstanding among people about how much information is out there if you think Cambridge analytica was a problem why don't you check out some of the commercial kind of um firms that track your spending, your mortgage, you know, anyone who works in any number of fields, like I have to go find people all the time. I show up at their doorsteps. Like, How did you get my address? I'm like, come on, man, that took about three minutes. 
um, it wasn't hard. And, you know, whereas I have um, a brother who's a doctor for an academic medical center, they do fundraising, you know, they have a sense of who they're calling up and how much money they make. And they're remarkably accurate about that. And they're using commercial data sets to figure this kind of stuff out. Um, and, and, you know, you combine that with generative AI. I don't know what you get. And if I did, uh, maybe I'd be in a different business, but it seems like there's a lot of room there to do things that are going to really shock, surprise and alarm people and maybe should alarm us going forward. And, and we're going to start seeing that. And I suspect the, the coming campaign will be kind of our first taste of it. Well, so perhaps uh, as our, our memories and our minds uh, begin to, uh, you know, settle in or, or harden in, uh, our perceptions begin to harden in five years out. Uh, Cambridge Analytica ultimately a harbinger, um, maybe misunderstood in certain respects, uh, but certainly from the pri- privacy perspective, uh, a harbinger of, of perhaps things to come. Still a lot of work to do, and I trust uh, the three of you will continue to work on those things. Thanks so much. Uh, Katie, I'll, I'll turn it over to you to say a, a quick goodbye. No, just thank you, everybody, for, for joining us to, today, um, and have a great afternoon. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to Katie Harbath, Pamela Larkin, and the Bipartisan Policy Center. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.